0: December 13, 2002 was the last day of the fall semester for students at Texas Lutheran University. Finals were over, and it was Friday night when a group of friends eager to celebrate their newfound freedom that was winter break gathered at the Sunset Terrace Apartments just off campus. Not wanting their night of fun to end, the friends stayed until the early hours of the morning, reluctant to say goodbye to one another until next term. It would be around 5 a.m. when the last of the party-goers trickled out of the apartment complex.
1: This was the same complex firefighters would respond to just a couple of hours later, battling the flames for roughly an hour. Neighbors gathering nearby to watch the scene unfold. A headcount by police coming up short. 21-year-old Maikiko Kasahara would remain unaccounted for until the smoke cleared and the heat subsided her charred and damaged remains, would be found in a bedroom, kicking off a homicide case that has yet to be solved. I'm Katie Kaplan, an investigative journalist. And I'm Em, a
0: former special agent, and you're listening to Two Sleuths. Warning, this podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for all listeners. All suspects or persons of interest discussed on this podcast are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Listener discretion advised. Texas Lutheran University is located in Seguin, and Seguin is considered one of the oldest cities in Texas, founded back in 1838 by Texas Rangers who named it after Colonel Juan Seguin. Now, Colonel Seguin was a spanish Tahino military figure during the Texas Revolution. And after the town was established, some of the earliest settlers were German families, who used the vast pastures to plant pecan orchards. These pecan operations are still functional today, and as a result, one of the town's popular tourist attractions is the world's largest pecan. You can find it today sitting in the charming and well-preserved downtown area, among other old historic buildings. On a
1: spookier note, some of you might recognize Seguin as home to the infamous Magnolia Hotel, which has been the centerpiece of numerous paranormal TV shows and movies. The hotel traces its roots back to the 1840s, when a two bedroom cabin was built by one of the three original founders of the city. Now, he met a horrible demise and was found skinned by local natives and buried not far from the building. In the years that followed, it reportedly grew into a stagecoach stop then Seguin's first hotel. The current owner claims to have 13 ghosts that haunt the property. In
0: 1912, the Texas Lutheran University was relocated from Brenham about two hours away to Seguin, where the private college is still operating today. Now, today's case takes place in the early 2000s. And during this time, the school had a small student population, about only 1,300 students. The city itself was also fairly small, with a population of around 24,000 residents. The victim
1: in today's case, Maikiko Kasahara, was born in Osaka, Japan, on June 18, 1981. She was the oldest of two girls, and she grew up there and came to the U.S. as a foreign exchange student in 2000 when she was 19. She later enrolled at Texas Lutheran in ESL, or English as a second language program.
0: And Maikiko jumped headfirst into her studies. After one year, she was proficient enough in English to enroll as a full-time student at the university. And during her freshman year, Maikiko was thriving. She had formed a solid group of good friends, many of whom were also exchange students. Professors remembered Maikiko fondly, saying that she was rarely seen without her pack of friends, and they were always so upbeat and lighthearted when they were together. They went on to describe her as well-liked by her classmates, always kind and polite, As she appeared a bit shy at first until you got to know her, and then her vivacious personality burst through.
1: By the end of her freshman year, Maikiko had been named on the provost list for academic excellence. She had a near 4.0 grade point average heading into her sophomore year, and she hadn't declared a major yet, but was taking a variety of courses to discover what she was really passionate about. One of her instructors would later recall a writing assignment that she had done during one of her ESL classes. Mykiko had written about a road trip that she had taken to San Antonio with her friends. On the way back to Seguin, they had pulled over and laid on the roof of the car, looking up at the stars. The professor says that this writing really portrayed what gentle soul Maikiko had had.
0: Another thing that came with Mykiko's sophomore year included moving off campus. She found a one-bedroom apartment at the Sunset Terrace. And when you look at Google Maps, it appears this apartment complex is less than half a mile from the campus and puts it at about a seven-minute walk. As her fall semester came to a close, she and her friends all had their last finals together on December 13th. With the stress of the day behind them, they were all in a celebratory mood. And so Maikiko invited her friends over to her apartment for a little party. And such is the case with college students who
1: are social. These gatherings at Mike Kiko's apartment were not uncommon. Neighbors would later say that they crossed paths with many of her friends during the various parties that she hosted. And each of her friends they encountered were nice and polite. They weren't the rowdy type at all. It would probably be more accurate to call them get-togethers rather than parties. A neighbor said they occasionally heard some music coming from Mike Kiko's apartment, but it was never at a disrespectful level.
0: The night of the 13th, Maikiko's close circle of friends arrived at her apartment looking forward to a night of celebration. As most of her friends were from China and Japan, they all had major flights to catch the next day, including Maikiko, who was returning home for the holidays. So not only were they celebrating their last final, but they were also reluctantly saying goodbye to one another before they all separated over the long winter break. It was well known that Maikiko did not drink or use drugs. And this was confirmed throughout the investigation. And they also learned that neither had her friends at the party that night. It's really seemed that this group just genuinely enjoyed each other's company. And they likely spent the night hanging out, talking, playing games, telling stories and listening to music like typical teenagers.
1: So despite it not being a rager, this gathering still lasted for hours. According to investigators, the gathering ended between 4.30 and 6 a.m. It would be the morning of December 14th, around 8 a.m., when a neighbor at the apartment called 911 and reported there was a fire. As first responders made their way to the building, residents were headed in the opposite direction, gathering outside in the courtyard and on the outskirts of the complex.
0: The Seguin Fire Department arrived quickly and started working on containing and extinguishing the fire. Reports stated it took somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour to completely put the flames out. Afterwards, they discovered that only two apartments were severely impacted by the fire, one of which was a unit on the ground floor, and it was visibly the most damaged, and then the unit directly above it had received only some smoke and water damage. As the firefighters were
1: occupied with getting the situation under control, officers were trying to figure out if there was anyone still inside the building. So they took a headcount in an effort to account for every resident, and they were able to make contact with the family who lived in that second-story unit that was damaged. They were all safe and accounted for, but police soon realized that the renter of the ground floor apartment, Maikiko Kasahara, could not be found.
0: After the apartment was deemed safe to enter, They searched the bedroom and ended up making a horrible discovery. They found charred human remains. Putting two and two together, investigators surmised that Maikiko likely hadn't escaped the fire. Meanwhile, Maikiko's parents had been expecting her to arrive back home. And when she didn't, they made some calls and were told about the fire at their daughter's apartment. They wasted no time and immediately hopped on a flight to Texas. It would take a few days, but eventually the remains were confirmed to be that of Maikiko.
1: The big question now for investigators was how did she die? And firstly, the manner of death needed to be determined. So was it an accident, a suicide, a homicide, or was it undetermined? That's where the autopsy comes in. In Maikiko's case, even though parts of her body were badly burned, it revealed a lot of information. First and foremost, it was clear that she had died before the fire started because there was no smoke in her lungs or her esophagus, so she wasn't breathing it in. Then the medical examiner discovered that the reason she likely wasn't breathing was because Maikiko's larynx had been broken.
0: Travis County medical examiner Elizabeth Peacock also observed that Mikiko had sustained a massive injury to her pelvis, which had resulted in significant hemorrhaging. There were also other traumatic injuries found on her body, but these findings were not specified. After examining what she could of the charred remains, she concluded that Mikiko had been sexually tortured and that her manner of death was homicidal violence, including, but not limited to, strangulation due to how badly Maikiko's body had been damaged by the fire, that was about as specific as the medical examiner was able to get. It was also never explicitly stated if they attempted a rape kit or if any DNA was recovered from Maikiko's remains. But her toxicology results did come back, and they only confirmed that she did not have any alcohol or drugs in her system prior to her death.
1: With the crime clearly labeled as a homicide or death at the hands of another, a slew of law enforcement agencies got involved. And we now have two investigations here, a suspicious death investigation and a fire investigation. So listen to this impressive list. Looking into the death investigation, we have the Seguin Police Department, the Guadalupe County Sheriff, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and if you're not familiar with the DPS, that includes the Texas Rangers, plus the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, of course. Then investigating the fire are the Seguin Fire Department, the New Braunfels Fire Marshal, and Federal Agents with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or ATF.
0: Now, one of their priorities in regards to the fire investigation— aside from sifting through the scene for evidence collection, is for them to actually determine the cause and the origin of the fire. They then write up their findings, and if the local department has jurisdiction, then they become lead on the fire investigation. And in the end, ATF ends up giving them the origin and cause report to help them guide their investigation. And that was true in this case, which remained at the state level. Now, the findings of the origin and cause report in this case have never been made public. But they did release the fact that it was determined that the cause of fire was arson, meaning that the cause was not accidental or electrical. Now, arson, by definition, is intentional, and it's not uncommon to see it alongside a homicide. Now, ATF brought one of their Accelerant-trained canines to the scene, and it was reported that the dog alerted while in Maikiko's apartment, meaning the dog likely smelled an Accelerant. We don't know if the dog hit on a part of the floor or some object in her apartment, but whatever it was, was removed and then sent to the lab to determine what kind of accelerant was used. And again, those findings also have not been made public.
1: Another thing that ATF agents and state fire marshals help with is recreating the fire scene and then running test fires to test their hypothesis. It also helps to establish a timeline, say, from when the fire was set to how long it would have taken before it would grab the attention of a neighbor who would then call 911. This, of course, ties back to the homicide investigation because it helps with the overall timeline of the killing. Unfortunately, investigators ran into their first big hurdle right off the bat. Many of the people who were at Mike Eco's party, the people who were the last known to see her alive, had left the country by the time investigators had tracked down their list of names. Remember, they were all foreign exchange students who had flights home for the winter break. So investigators had to wait for them to return to the area for the next semester before they could be interviewed. In the interim, they turned their immediate focus to the scene of the crime. Investigators canvassed the apartment complex and spoke to as many residents as they could. They wanted to know who knew Maikiko, what her habits were, and what her neighbors noticed around the time of the homicide and fire.
0: And the cooperation law enforcement got from the residents appeared to be a bit of a mixed bag. Some of them were helpful and willing to tell police anything they were asked. While I also saw reports that other neighbors were being less than cooperative. Apparently, several neighbors were polygraphed, and one of them outright refused to take it, saying that they were offended that the police wanted to even give them a polygraph.
1: As far as the crime scene goes, only one piece of evidence has ever really been publicly confirmed to have been collected, and this evidence is a badly burned laptop. Luckily, a forensic search of the data on that laptop led to one of the only clues in this case and a possible motive for murder. Investigators say they discovered a trove of Asian-themed porn, which was accessed in the time frame between when that party ended and that fire started. Police have stated that this pushed them toward a theory that the killer may have had a sexual preference or possibly a fetish for Asian women, and that the murder was sexually motivated. But this is where the lucky break ends, because any physical evidence like fingerprints or touch DNA was destroyed by the fire.
0: Eventually, Mikeiko's friends returned home from their holiday, and they were all interviewed by the police. Seguin Police Lieutenant Mike Rosas said that after speaking to the friends that were at her apartment that night, they had learned nothing new, and no additional leads or persons of interest were generated. Then, about a month after her murder, Lieutenant Rosas was quoted as saying that their investigation was in a holding pattern. They had no suspect. The next update wouldn't come for another three years, in 2005 when police revealed that they believed Maikiko's killer was a man. Nothing else is specified about this revelation, so we don't know if they have actual evidence pointing to the fact that he was a man, or if they just feel confident announcing it based off of the statistical likelihood that a sexual crime perpetrated against a female was done by a man.
1: In the same statement, the lieutenant said that they have interviewed several people of interest, some of which have been ruled out and some of which they are keeping on their list. However, he didn't go beyond that statement to identify how many suspects they have or who they might be. One of the first detectives on the scene was a woman named Maureen Watson. She ended up working the case for years to the point the investigation filled several large binders with police reports, analysis provided by those federal partners we talked about, witness statements and suspect interviews. And Detective Watson was clearly profoundly impacted by the case. There's a quote in an article by the Seguin Gazette where she says the brutality of how Maikiko was killed disgusted her. And she got to know Maikiko's family very well and even kept a picture of Maikiko next to a picture of her own daughter. It's been reported that eventually Maikiko's parents told Detective Watson that they have forgiven whoever did this to their daughter. All they want now is an explanation and a sincere apology.
0: Immediately after Maikiko was found murdered, and in the years since, this case hasn't received a ton of coverage. Beyond that, very few details have been released, and there hasn't been much in the way of updates. But my Kiko's case remains unsolved, and it needs more attention. And as we will go into later, I think they have some good evidence that they're keeping close to the chest. But we want to dive deeper into this case. So Katie and I are going to walk you through some additional observations that we've made from studying what has been made available in this case as well as ask some of the questions that we have. We will avoid wildly speculating, but instead posit scenarios and observations based on our training and experience. The first thing I want to dive into is getting into all of the details about this apartment complex, because these are the kinds of details that I want to know when I've joined an investigation after the crime has been committed.
1: So we've already established that MyKiko lived on the ground floor of a two-story apartment complex. The property is not gated or secured and collectively consists of six buildings. So to picture it, use your imagination here. Those six buildings are laid out in two rows with three buildings per row. And those rows face each other. And between them is a courtyard type area. Each building has eight apartments, four facing that courtyard with two on the ground floor and two on the second floor, and then four on the back side of the building facing the parking lots, two on the ground floor, two on the second floor. The second floor apartments all have their own open air staircase that leads up to the front area. There are about 48 units in total.
0: So what exactly does any of that tell us? Well, personally, I think it says a lot. First off, the entire complex is out in the open and each apartment door could have been approached by anyone, resident or not. And the doors could be seen from various vantage points throughout the complex. Another thing is all four sides of this complex are surrounded with parking lots. The north, south, and east sides all have one row that runs the length of the entire side of the building, where each vehicle can park directly facing the units. The west side has a parking street, so over there the cars run parallel with that side of the building. Again, all of this is to say that if someone had specifically targeted Maikiko or if she was being stalked, then these parking spots provide a really good vantage point to watch the front door of multiple different units.
1: One thing that we don't know is specifically which building Maikiko lived in. We haven't found a single source that identifies the crime scene beyond a ground floor apartment at the Sunset Terrace Apartments in the 900 block of San Antonio Avenue. In theory, the design of this apartment complex would lend itself to being easily cased. If someone wanted to lay in wait or watch from the shadows, they could hypothetically do that from a parked vehicle like M just mentioned, waiting for the right moment to strike. Or if it was a neighbor, they could have a good point of view of the surrounding apartment. However, a really important detail we don't know is if maikiko lived in a courtyard or parking lot facing unit.
0: So if we rule out maikiko's friends as the killer and to do that, it means we're relying on the statement made by the lieutenant, then my first thought would be that the killer may have possibly lived in the same apartment complex. So now we zero in on the single building that Maikiko lived in. We know that she had three immediate neighbors who came and went in her direct vicinity, and they likely saw each other coming and going frequently. And so one of the most frustrating parts when trying to dissect this complex is what Katie just mentioned. We don't know if she had a parking lot unit or a courtyard-facing unit. The reason this would be extremely helpful is because if her unit faced the parking lot, then she would have been visually isolated from so many of the other units in the courtyard. And on the flip side, if she had had a courtyard unit, the number of people across the way that could have simply looked out their front window to watch her come and go vastly increases. Being in the courtyard also would have left her with more potential interactions with neighbors who may have been out using the common area. So for me personally, knowing the difference boils down the suspect pool within the apartment. If she had a parking lot side unit, only a few neighbors could have kept a watchful eye on her without being noticed. A courtyard unit, however, opens up a multitude of additional neighbors as possible suspects.
1: We know that Mike Kiko had friends over all night before she was killed and that some of them stayed until around 5 a.m. If an outsider had planned to break into her apartment to assault and or kill her, then they would have had to keep watch all night long and then get lucky enough to sneak in when the coast was clear. And they would have likely needed a clear view of her unit that night to keep watch. But this obviously is very risky and leaves a lot of variables up to chance. Is it impossible? No. Improbable, I think yes. I also think it was likely this person knew she was leaving for the holiday break that next morning, and someone who was familiar with MyKiko based on the nature of the porn that was found on the laptop. Is it possible that MyKiko was watching that porn herself? Well, sure, but the laptop was burned after she died, so maybe the intention of the fire was partially to destroy evidence on it. So was it a late-night booty call, someone that she summoned after the crowd had dispersed? Possibly. Or was it someone who was at the party that night who didn't leave?
0: The simplest explanation is often the right one. So if we consider that in this case, then it's quite possible that the person who killed Mike was the last one to leave the party that morning. We have absolutely no idea what the police truly know in this case. But at least publicly, they've stated that the friends have all been cleared. So if this is true, then we need to continue to examine how an outsider could have done this. Maybe they had no idea she had a party that night, and they just happened to enter her apartment and commit the crime after all of her friends left sometime after 5 a.m. Now, another thing we don't know is the exact time of the 911 call compared to the time that the fire was first observed. Articles just say that it was about three hours after the party ended, so that means the fire could have started as early as 8 a.m. What's extremely interesting about that is that on December 14th, 2002, The sun rose at 7.17 a.m. that morning. This means that the killer set the fire and left the apartment after the sun was already up.
1: More importantly, people are already up and moving about at that time of day. People are heading to work or walking their dogs, maybe taking their kids to daycare or a weekend sporting event. Now, this killer was brazen enough or perhaps desperate enough to set a fire and leave my Kiko's apartment in broad daylight without the fear of being seen by someone. Now, this complex wasn't massive, so it could be the kind of place where one might recognize their neighbor Or perhaps someone out of the ordinary would really stand out. So again, back to the theory that the killer lived in a nearby unit. Maybe no one flagged them as out of the ordinary because they lived there too. Maybe they were able to get back inside their own apartment before being seen. And another interesting note is that there's no mention of Maikiko being bound around the mouth. So if she was assaulted or attacked, wouldn't her neighbors have heard her screams in the early morning hours? We know that some of them were able to hear her music during her parties, so the walls likely weren't that thick. Another theory is that maybe Mike was having consensual sex with someone, potentially even watching the porn with the perpetrator, when things took a violent turn. And in a panic, the perp torched the place after realizing what he had done. Again, just a theory that has to be considered until it can be definitively ruled out.
0: Something else to analyze is the very, very narrow window in which these crimes were committed. Sometime between her friends leaving, between 4.30 and 6 a.m., and the fire being called in after 9 a.m., the killer had taken the time to sexually torture and kill maikiko as well as watching so much porn that it was considered to be a trove and setting a fire. And we don't know the results of the fire marshal and ATF's findings if they were able to determine just how long it took the fire to spread and be observed by someone. But the result of this could narrow that window even further. All of this, of course, depends on if an accelerant was used and what objects were in the room that served as a fuel source for the fire. So again, we're looking at a really small window of time where all of these things happen, each event bringing him closer and closer to daylight. The evidence seems to suggest that the killer spent a decent amount of time in the apartment before setting the fire. Another thing that we know is that in the event of homicide, arson is often a secondary crime, used to either cover up evidence tying the killer to the victim or attempting to hide the identity of a victim. So to Katie's point, it's possible that starting the fire wasn't exactly planned, but something that happened during the crime that they wanted to erase. Yet again, being something that could have taken a chunk out of the killer's time to formulate and plan and find a way to start the fire with things around Maikiko's apartment.
1: Another thing we don't know was how the suspect gained access to her apartment. Police have not disclosed whether or not they found signs of a forced entry. So there are a few potential ways that this could have happened. One being breaking and entering, either through picking the lock, entering through an unlocked window, or using force. For example, with a crowbar, which generally leaves behind visible evidence. Second, the door could have been left unlocked or open. Maybe this was done by one of her guests when they left.
0: Third, was a key used? Did she give a key to somebody? Did maintenance workers or managers have one? What about old tenants? Were the locks changed afterwards, or was it one of those lazy landlords who didn't change them, and they just collected old keys, leaving behind any copies that could be floating around out there? And finally, Makiko could have just opened the door if the killer had knocked or was invited, especially if the killer approached her door right after one of her guests left. She could have been more inclined to open it without asking, assuming her friend had just come back for something.
1: Don't forget, the killer could have already been inside a guest of her party who didn't leave. Most forms of forced entry, like picking a lock, using a crowbar, or kicking in the door, can take time and can be loud, attracting attention and witnesses. Also, some potential evidence for these methods could have been destroyed by the fire. These answers are likely inside the case file, which police haven't commented on much and which aren't public record.
0: Going through all of this, The odds of someone seeing or hearing something between the hours of 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. are high. It could have been the smallest bit of information that seems insignificant that actually ends up being the final piece of the puzzle that police are waiting for. And it really seems like that could be the case here. Because from what I gather, they have someone that they consider a pretty decent suspect. In 2012, Seguin
1: Gazette reporter Felicia Frazier followed up on the case. In her interviews with investigators, they revealed that the same person of interest continues to pop up in the investigation over and over again and that they have not been able to rule this person out. The detective she interviewed mentioned they were waiting on some test results at the time and were hoping to sit down with this individual again after those results came in.
0: And this person has never been named publicly but it does sound like they have some evidence sitting in a lab somewhere. However, depending upon the type of evidence it is, it could be a long wait. I know some federal labs that are backed up by several years. They could even have a few different pieces of evidence that all point to one person. Another thing Felicia pointed out after talking to investigators is something I know all too well when bringing cases to attorneys for prosecution. A DA or AUSA wants to be confident beyond any doubt that they have enough to win a case, which means that while they might have a really good suspect and cooperating evidence, the attorney could be saying that they still want more before they move forward. Now, the article referencing the results they were waiting on was from roughly 12 years ago, but our technology has significantly advanced just from 2012. It's advanced so much that if a cold case has evidence that hasn't been retested in the last two years, they could be missing something. So if that's the case here, they should be resubmitting any evidence they have in this case. Now, and back to what you just mentioned about the DAs,
1: I've had investigators from cases I've reported on tell me that they know who the killer is, but that the DA is worried about their win record in court and they won't try the case unless it is a slam dunk. So that's just a little look at how politics and an elected position can get intertwined in these types of things. Now, one thing in this case that investigators feel confident about is that Maikiko knew her killer and that it was someone who had some type of connection with her. They don't think that it was a random crime of opportunity. Detective Watson was assigned this case more than 20 years ago now, and she carried it with her throughout her career. She often met with Maikiko's mother, who was a doctor and flew to the U.S. at least once a year for a conference. And during her trip to the States, she would always stop by and see Detective Watson. They formed a strong connection. Eventually, Detective Watson was promoted to captain of
0: detectives, and she had to hand the case over. Today, the massive case file sits in the hands of Detective Jamie Diaz. He, too, meets with Maikiko's mother when she's in town. And on one visit, She gave him a good luck charm that he still carries with him today. Unfortunately, that is it. That's where this case stands today. Maikiko's homicide is still unsolved, and the individual who violently killed her is still out there and has not been held accountable for this crime. Maikiko is still remembered by not only the police department, but also the university. Her professors and classmates gathered photos of Maikiko and presented them to her family as a tribute so they could remember the happy and carefree times Maikiko experienced in her tragically short life. On the 10th anniversary of Maikiko's murder, the university laid a brick engraved with her name on their memorial walk.
1: Working on this episode, we marked the 21-year anniversary of Maikiko's murder. In a Seguin Gazette article, Detective Diaz was quoted years ago as saying, We are still looking for any leads, any help, or clues of what anybody saw that morning. I know there were several people living in the apartment complex, and I'm not sure if at the time we located everyone. I know from just talking to detectives that there were some people who were afraid at that time to speak out. I am hoping that somebody will speak out after 10 years and tell us if they saw something or heard something. Again, it has now been 21 years, and it appears they are still waiting for somebody to speak out.
0: My Kiko was an innocent and her life was stolen from her. If you know something, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem, please call in to Crime Stoppers at 1877 403 TIPS. And the number will also be down in our show notes. There is currently a 3000 dollars reward for any information that leads to solving Mykiko's case. Please help us in spreading the word about MyKiko as it is underrepresented and we believe there is someone out there that knows something. My Kiko Kasahara didn't deserve to die, but she deserves to be remembered.
1: All right, guys, time now for our first case that caught our eye segment. We mentioned we'd be starting this last fall. It's just a quick, much more off the cuff segment about a case that's currently in the headlines. So I'm choosing the Scott Peterson case because I have just been floored since the news came out that the Los Angeles Innocence Project is taking it up.
0: And actually, this was the first I'm hearing about this, Katie. Um, Obviously, I know the Scott Peterson case. Uh, I went to college around that area. It's kind of shocking to hear this new update. So if you're not familiar, Scott Peterson was convicted and sentenced to death in the murder of his pregnant wife, Lacey, and the death of their unborn baby, Connor. Lacey Peterson was 27 years old and eight months pregnant when she disappeared on Christmas Eve in 2002.
1: Right. And the search for her garnered national headlines. That's actually what helped to eventually unravel it. Growing up in SoCal, I remember it all playing out. Scott was the grieving husband. He was giving interviews and going to candlelight vigils. But then things started to not add up. Eventually, a mistress in another state came out of the woodwork, and she said she had seen Scott's picture on the news and later testified during the trial that Scott had told her he was a widower before Lacey had disappeared. And eventually, this is horrible, but Lacey's body and that of Connor's both were found after they washed up in the San Francisco Bay Area the following April.
0: Now, during his trial, all sorts of evidence pointing towards Scott came out including the purchase of a new boat and a trip he took out on the water alone the Christmas Eve morning she disappeared. He had been on death row until recently when his sentence was overturned. His conviction was upheld, but his sentence was changed to life in prison without parole. So it was just last week that the Los Angeles Innocence Project has announced they have taken up the case. They filed court documents claiming Peterson's state and federal constitutional rights were violated during his original trial and that they have potentially new evidence, which points to a different individual who could have abducted and killed Lacey. They believe DNA testing from a stained mattress found during the investigation could lead to a different suspect. Now, this
1: is all playing out in real time. And as we know, the wheels of justice turn slowly. But I was shocked by this news and really, to be honest, a bit confused when I heard it. So I thought I would just do a little housekeeping for those who haven't done a lot of research into it. First of all, as M just mentioned, Scott Peterson's conviction still stands, as does his life sentence. This is just a court filing by a group of pro bono attorneys who represent people they believe to have been wrongfully committed. Now, they do have evidence they say that backs up their claims in this court filing. And secondly, the LA Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization, wholly independent of the Better Known Innocence Project. They're not connected, but they do do similar work. And a lot of times they're doing really good work. Now, some of Scott's family has maintained his innocence all along alongside him. But as an advocate for the families of victims, I have not been able to stop thinking of Lacey's family and what they must be going through with hearing this news.
0: Yeah, it's always uh, hard to hear when, you know, you think a family has gotten closure so many decades later, it can be reopened and bring all of those emotions back for the family who thought that at least they were able to move on. Right. Now, this case, having occurred 20 years ago, is now going to be coming back into the spotlight. So we'll continue to watch it very closely and post any major updates on our social media. So now's a good time to go follow us over on any platform, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Twitter under Two Sleuths Podcast, and uh, check out any updates that we have on this and any other future cases. So that was the case that caught our eye this week. If there's any cases that have caught your eye, let us know. And that's going to conclude today's episode. If you're enjoying the show, please do us a favor, rate us, review us in your podcast player. Please, please. (laughs) And then we will see you back here next week. Until then, stay vigilant and stay curious.